Star Trek Picard is almost upon us, and therefore we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. We are one week out from the premiere of Star Trek Picard, and I am all ready for a next generation of Star Trek content gracing our streaming services. My name is Jessica Lease, and with me as always is my trusty number one, who is not a dog, he is a human, and his name is Mike Bloom. Jessica, I painted you something, but I don't know how to finish it. I don't know how to finish it either. Well, perhaps you could finish painting the lines on my forehead after the CGI visual effects finally went through. <laughs> okay, that was that was hilarious. The bad CGI data. Um, yeah, but then but then apparently it's been updated now to good CGI, or it was just like that was an early prototype, and we saw essentially them try to like youthify poor Brent Spiner. Now it seems like they're going to try to adapt data or before whoever we're seeing in Picard to actually age, quote-unquote, naturally like data was supposed to do in the regular canon. But yeah, something out of the uncanny valley we saw back in uh, June with SDCC. That's, it, it is a little creepy. I, I did notice that, and I only ever saw still images of it. Um, it didn't really... Like the still images, I think I could have been okay with, but if you're like trying to deep fake that stuff, that's that's going to end up looking really weird. Yeah, and you know they have some stuff to work with, anyways. I think they try to thread a pretty forthcoming needle with saying, okay, this is going to take place several years after Nemesis, so we can explain the aging if we're bringing back several next generation cast members or even cast members from other Star Trek series. But what do we do about? the one character who's not supposed to age and you know uh, again we also don't know we talked about this in our canon catch-up if the data we're seeing is really data is that before is this like a hollow deck data or a dream data if that's the case then really the sky's the limit the star's the limit uh, when it comes to seeing this but we are here and we're going to talk about many many lines that we saw not necessarily on Brent Spiner's forehead but in these trailers and we're going to see over the next 10 weeks of Picard Jess. Yeah, it it is a tantalizing prospect to have some brand new Picard. I think it's been 18 years since the last canonical appearance of John Luke Picard, so I I for one am pretty excited about this. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this a bit during our canon catch-up, but now that it's finally becoming a reality, this is so freaking awesome. And this feels different than the other reboots we've gotten. I talked about this uh, two podcasts ago about how, you know, we're in a reboot-happy culture, so it wouldn't make sense for people to be like, yeah, I like Jean-Luc Picard, we should bring Jean-Luc Picard back. You know, it really does seem like the care that has been put into Picard is really noticed both Alex Kurtzman and Michael Chabon have both very gone forward and said, you know, we wanted to make this very different from Next Generation. Why would we want to go back and do Next Generation again? Then we would just be repeating the same points. You know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Patrick Stewart has said the same thing as well, saying I wouldn't sign on to a project that was just repeating the Next Generation I'm also really excited for what this is as a Star Trek series. I heard something along the lines from Alex Christman of like, Discovery is a bullet and Picard is going to be a more contemplative show with a very different rhythm. Just this could be like the first Star Trek series that's akin to like the peak TV, whereas maybe Discovery is more akin to like the, the big budget movies or even like a Star Wars-ization of Star Trek. This is going to be something that truly like 
takes its time and maybe focuses on smaller, less landscapey pieces. Well, Mike, it's interesting that you bring that up because I, I did do a little bit of reading around various, uh, various interviews with people associated with the series. And I think the feeling is that the era of peak TV gives them the opportunity to tell stories in a different way with a different pacing. And it was touched on in a couple of interviews that I read that Star Trek The Next Generation at the time, this the way that the stories had to be tell, told was very self-contained and very episodic. And it was really only with Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which many people would agree is best Trek um, so far, that the structure of Deep Space Nine was much more of story arcs spanning whole seasons and, in fact, the whole series at a certain point. And that gave them a chance to kind of tell these much richer and more nuanced stories. And the takeaway from that was this is the kind of story that we want to tell. We want to tell novels rather than, you know, an omnibus of short stories. And so with Picard, it's really not going to be totally very similar to Star Trek The Next Generation at all, but it's going to take one story and kind of unfold it over the course of the season. Yeah, well, not only that, even just from a central character perspective, I cannot imagine 20 years ago, if you say, we want a series that puts 79-year-old Sir Patrick Stewart in the forefront in all the action, I think, you know, various production companies would balk at that. But I think, odd as it is, things like Breaking Bad and The Sopranos have sort of given way to, I wouldn't call Picard an anti-hero, but definitely putting atypical archetypes to the forefront in terms of central characters. You know, it doesn't need to be like the bold, dashing, young to middle-aged man, which you could argue that Patrick Stewart was actually initially as Picard, but it also, this age of creative leniency allows people to go back and be like, yeah, you know what? Let's see a near 80-year-old Picard go back and see if he can still be as rough and tumble, uh, you know, in space. Or maybe he's not. Maybe he's more contemplative and quiet, but it's going to be different no matter what. Okay, first of all, how is Patrick Stewart 79 years old? He looks amazing. He really does. I wouldn't have, like, it, it really looks like... It's maybe been 10 years, and then you think about it, it's been 25 since he was on a TV series in the Star Trek universe. So that is amazing, number one. And number two, I think the anti-hero stuff is especially interesting based on all of the knowledge that we have of the series so far and all of the speculation that we've done around the short treks and what repercussions that might have on the series as well as what we've seen in the trailer so far, because Picard is a guy that's grappling with something big, and he is a man with some flaws, which I think Next Generation did a better job of giving us a flawed captain with a lot going on in his head than necessarily the original series did. But this is another I mean, step the, the original series captain had a different head issue going on. <laughs> he had He had a lot going on. <laughs> Beep, yeah, beep. but I agree. <laughs> but but I would also say that like the uh, the the flaws they were flaws, but they're also more presented like quirks. 
you know, like they're not exactly personality stoppages, other things that, you know, he <laughs> works around and learns to improve his behavior. But yeah, this is, you know, seems to be a legitimate trauma. Again, going back to Deep Space Nine, we see that firsthand with Ben Sisko going through Wolf 359 and how that demonstrably changes, obviously, his life, but also him as a person. It does seem, and I'm assuming we're about to get into it, exactly what may have happened, that it's changed. You know, I think he assumingly has left Starfleet after this. He's retired to this vineyard. And I think it's made him very disillusioned to these ideals that he held so true. He's waxed profane and profound about how, you know, the duty of every Starfleet officer is to the truth, scientific truth or historical truth or personal truth. But what happens when those truths are not universal truths? And I feel like that is something that he figured out in the time in between Next Generation and Picard that finds him where he is now. Yeah, that's a really beautiful and profound thought, I think, Mike. Uh, I would also, I think we should just take stock of all of the things we know Picard to have canonically lost just based on our knowledge of the universe. I think some of the interviews that I've read have said that he is still grappling with the loss of data at the end of Star Trek Nemesis, mm-hmm. although it's been quite a few years since then. Uh, so I imagine there are other things that are going on with him. We also know that he lost his brother and nephew in a fire, and the destruction of Romulus is weighing heavily on his conscience. So Yeah, so so actually, I want to stop now because we didn't mention this during our canon catch-up, but I feel like this should be talked about, especially for people who might have just paused their podcast on their own record scratch and been like, wait a minute, when did Romulus get destroyed? Uh, because yeah, just this was a, a recent development in terms of news and a surprising crossing of the streams, a smidge between this timeline and what's known as the Kelvin timeline, which is the events of the J.J. Abrams Star Trek films. Yes, that's true. Um, because Romulus being destroyed was kind of a focal point of that first Star Trek film, but we are given to understand that in the Prime Universe, this has also happened. Right. And I don't know if it's the same, if there's the same course of events, because I believe in the Star Trek movie, it was that Spock, who was an ambassador at that point, had like gone to the Romulans and said, hey, just so you know, there's this supernova outside Romulus, and the Romulans were like, GTFO, don't (laughs) care, we're the Romulans, we're hoity-toity, and then Spoiler alert, they get enveloped by this supernova and these other Romulans travel through a wormhole, go back in time and try to get revenge on Spock, feeling that it's his fault. I don't know if Spock's involvement is the same thing. I'm assuming we'll hear more about the destruction of Romulus that makes me feel like maybe it wasn't that involvement. But it does seem like in both timelines, Romulus does get destroyed to the point where the Romulans go from a very powerful civilization to what seems like just a few stragglers. We're going to see some Romulan cast members, as we'll get into, but they seem like much, much more of a minority than we've seen in many series. Yeah, and I think there will be some dealing with I've I've heard some rumblings about Romulan refugees being an issue that that could be very interesting, I think, um, and very topical as well. But we don't really know a whole lot yet about the whys of of this, only that it is kind of something that's in the lead up to this series. Yeah, um, even though, you know, one of the things that. I think it was like the first line of the first trailer maybe was uh, 15 years ago today, you let us out of the darkness. Uh, and then there's something later on in one of the later trailers when Picard meets with Raffi to get him in, get her in on, you know, his big scheme. And she's like, oh, are you mounting another uh, illegal rescue mission? So 
reading between the lines, something tells me, and I don't know how this links to the attack on Mars that we saw on Children of Mars, if at all, but something tells me that at some point, Picard is going to try to mount his own Cavalier rescue mission on Romulus uh, back when, you know, it was being destroyed, maybe against Starfleet's wishes. Maybe that's what causes him to retire and get disillusioned ultimately. But trying to read those context clues, I ultimately think that's Picard's involvement in the destruction of Romulus. And to the original point you made, I could see from that perspective, that weighs very heavily on him, considering he definitely would have some sort of form of survivor's guilt of, you know, I could have helped them or I could have helped more of them. Do we think that he just failed to help them or could he possibly have been somehow directly or indirectly responsible for the actual destruction of the planet? Yeah, I mean, again, we don't if it was a natural thing like the supernova, it could be a thing where like maybe Romulus came to them begging for aid and Starfleet denied them. Let's remember that Picard is going to become an admiral at some point, which is very interesting because I believe at least if you're going by the novels as canon, I don't think Picard ever wanted to become an admiral. It's not as Kirky and as like, screw it, I'm back on the Enterprise, but I just don't think he ever wanted to do that. So to see him as an admiral is very surprising. Or it could be something where, you know, he either intentionally or unintentionally brings an alien force to Romulus and forces an attack on them, which would definitely have a lot of blood on his hands. Yeah, and let's let's catch up with the... Um what we know about the Federation's relationship to Romulus, I think, is a useful exercise to consider as well, because I think we know that as of the end of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, we had this kind of uneasy peace with the Romulans because we sort of hoodwinked them into joining up with the Federation in the Dominion War. Mm-hmm. I think they they were never really like full allies. They sort of fought alongside the Federation for that amount of time. And then after that, I'm not sure exactly where they wound up. Yeah, not to also mention that, you know, obviously Picard himself has uh, some history with Romulans. I do not know. We're talking about seeing uh, previous TNG actors. I don't think we've mentioned Sela, played by uh, Denise Crosby, the Tasha Yar Romulan hybrid, uh, who I think was still alive as of the end of TNG. And, you know, Picard was also somebody to stop uh, a Klingon civil war that had erupted being puppeted by the Romulans. So, you know, maybe when he's ascended to a higher up position, even just outside of the external circumstances, the Romulans would certainly have an axe to grind with him, no matter what the circumstances. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely not in dispute. Um, the other the other issues I think surrounding uh, what this might, dark spot in Picard's life might be, I think it's really interesting to ponder how the what kind of role artificial intelligence is going to play. Because we certainly we got a hint of this as we discussed last week in the Children of Mars short trek. There is a throwaway line on the screen about the synths uprising and destroying the mining colonies on Mars. And it's the Terminator crossover you never knew you needed, Jess. Well, look, we just spent five minutes dissecting why data is allowed to age when it's like, obviously, they just saw Terminator Genesis and they're going with that. Yeah, exactly. Bring in another Game of Thrones actor. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so, you know, we got... We've got some like weird haunting dreams with data. We have this hint that there there might be something about the synth uprising. We've got the return of two AI 
type characters. We have Seven of Nine and Hugh of Borg. And Seven of Nine, I was kind of shocked based on everything I had read about what she might be doing. It turns out she is really not doing anything that I would have thought she would be doing uh, based on what, what I knew of her in Voyager. And I had read, I think canonically, she had been involved in like diplomacy between the Borg and the Federation. And she had she'd kind of taken on this role of like being a negotiator because her very logical mind could facilitate people coming to common ground. And then we see seven of nine and she's like double fisting blasters and she's a complete and total badass. And she's like some kind Mm. of mercenary on rescue missions. And like, that is not what I was primed for. Well, that goes back again to maybe she's another similar person who's been disillusioned. You know, I think she was sort of conditioned during Voyager to your point, sort of being this go-between and like, hey, there's more to life than being a Borg and trying to assimilate everything in the universe. What if she realized that that connection was tougher than it was initially sought out? Especially because from what I'm seeing, and again, this goes back to Romulus, I think there's a plot where some subset of the Romulans, maybe just the surviving Romulans, are trying to appropriate Borg technology. My assumption is maybe they're trying to create new Romulans, trying to using the the assimilation software from the Borg. Maybe they're just trying to rebuild an army that's on their side. But considering what the Borg are being sort of taken apart and being used for, I can understand why Seven of Nine is not entirely on board with this, uh, you know, Peace Olive Branch train. Or on Borg with it. Yeah, or on Borg, exactly. Yeah, th- that was a really interesting thing to see in the trailer because anytime anybody's tried to mess around with Borg technology, generally doesn't go well for any non Borg yeah. participants. I kind of wouldn't Yeah, do don't that. use Mary Shelley's Frankenstein as a blueprint, use it as a cautionary tale. Yeah, I mean, the the oldest stories are the best stories. You don't even need to, you don't even need to be in the middle of the Darmok universe to speak in metaphor here. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's just like, it's, it's just a bad idea. Like, don't, don't mess with that. But I, I have to imagine that there's, I, I'm not sure how it all ties together. We see some pissed off Romulans. We see some hints of Borg technology. But where are the Borg at this point, Mike? Can you fill us in? Well, so I see there's a couple of shots in a couple of these trailers of a pretty destroyed Borg cube in what looks like some sort of force field, which I could imagine maybe it's something where like the Romulans have captured a Borg cube and are like using those Borg to experiment with these new, you know, methods to see if they're indeed able to get done what they want to. I thought I also saw something where like uh, a Borg cube like ejected a sphere out of it, maybe sort of like a transfer pod. I'm not entirely sure, but I could see something where, you know, I don't think the Borg are entirely down and out, but if they are able to actually use the Borg technology, then they just became. Uh, Back again to being, you know, one of the bigger threats in the universe, though, for a much different reason than it was during TNG and DS9. Yeah, Romulans plus Borg, that's kind of terrifying. But I always just kind of assume Borg plus anybody just means more Borg. (laughs) You would assume so, but I don't know if they're able to somehow, you know, overcome if they're able to overcome Hugh's singularity. What's to say that the Romulan intellect 
Uh, definitely not the Riemann intellect, considering we know what the <laughs> Riemanns look like. But the Romulan inter- intellect, you know what? They really needed a uh, Picard. They really needed a uh, Picard's clone. Uh, we, ne- we needed uh, what's his name? Uh, Tom Hardy. We need Tom Hardy from Nemesis. If only he didn't <laughs> blow up with data. Yeah, I I forgot all about Tom Hardy and Nemesis. I got to be honest. Nemesis was pretty forgettable. Yeah, for, like this is so. This is one of those things where you would travel back in time, or if someone came to you today and was like, "Hey, just so you know, there's a movie 25 years ago where Patrick Stewart and Tom Hardy played like clones slash brothers of each other," <laughs> you'd be very, very confused. But it existed, and it's called Star Trek Nemesis, and it's not very good. Yeah, also because Tom Hardy didn't get famous for like another five to ten years after that. Exactly. It's one of those like, oh, yeah, he was in that thing. I didn't even realize it. Oh, that guy. Yeah. I mean, he also didn't have any hair, so it's it's tough to recognize him now. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think uh, lack of hair is my problem with recognizing Tom Hardy because, you know, he was Bane. Well, yeah. Well, it's, and it's also like, uh, you know, in his look is more so, you know, uh, like Nicholas Holt in Mad Max Fury Road than himself as Mad Max in Mad Max Fury Road. Yes, that that is fair to say. Um, Nicholas Holt, another one of those ones that you see in movies that are fifteen to twenty years old, and you're like, I can't believe that's him. But yeah, that- he is one of those one of those that guys. And I guess Tom Hardy sort of uh, was able to work out of that guy into that guy. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I guess that's the levels of emphasis, but. Yeah, uh, I'm even, I guess, looking at this cast as well. And we have, we have some that guys and that girls here, Jess. And we also have a, a good amount of who is that guy and who is that girl. Yeah, I think, well, should we get into this then? Should we take a look at some of our our above-the-fold cast here? Yeah, because we, we, we mentioned, I think, some of the returning cast from TNG. But we have a good handful of new characters, which makes sense. You know, I think this is a good way for Picard to sort of put everyone in the same runabout, as it were, and say, like, hey, we don't know any of these characters. We're all going to move forward with them together. Maybe these are new people you'll fall in love with. It's also interesting in that it seems like this is going to be part of Picard's quote-unquote crew, but Patrick Stewart has been very adamant to say, like, they're not a ship's crew. And because Picard seems to be going off the map with whatever he's doing, you know, this is going to be one of the first times, one of the first Star Trek series where the main group of characters are not based in Starfleet, which is a cool idea. I think it's definitely a cool idea just because I think it gives so much more dimension to this universe. And I think in the past, when Star Trek has tried to give you a taste of what things looks like outside of the Federation, it's, it's really kind of fallen short. It's been a little disappointing because I think they just don't really know how to make civilians seem interesting. Uh the, the Federation totally fleshed out. We kind of understand how people live and interact in those systems. And then you step outside of that and everything feels like the alien civilizations that they visit on the show. They really have a hard time with like, what is just a random person on Earth doing? And I think this will be a good chance to to take a look at what happens if you don't choose the uh, – socialist utopian military and you're out just like living your life yeah it's really interesting especially the timing of this theming you know i think uh i believe it was santiago cabrera 
aka Mr. Isak from Heroes, who plays uh, Chris Rios, the captain of the ship, about, you know, because uh, I believe he said that Chris Rios is he's someone who reveres Captain Picard, but at the same time, like, he hates Starfleet. And when asked why, he basically says something along the lines of, you know, in 20 years, institutions and viewpoints of institutions can change a lot. And I actually think the focus on a ragtag group of people instead of an organization like Starfleet is actually pretty emblematic of this day and age. And, you know, not to get too political, but it's Star Trek. It's inevitably a a political show, but I really do feel like no matter what side you're on, this day and age is really about sort of like grassroots populist organizations. You know, it's about people organizing on their own and speaking up when they feel like their voices are being squashed or unheard by larger organizations. So I actually think it fits beautifully for this time that this is focusing less on, okay, here's this big governmental, you know, bureaucratic organization and more so on. We're the people, we're living day to day. We don't like what they're doing. So we're going to protest in our own way by working together to get done what we feel are the necessary issues. It's a little more Star Wars than Star Trek when you put it that way. Yeah, to the point where, you know, I'm looking at Chris Rios, and maybe it's just the way that Santiago Cabrera comports himself, but I mean, he did look a little, you know, Han Solo, maybe even a little bit of like Star-Lord from Guardians of the Galaxy with the way he sort of just is like slouching on his chair, chomping on a cigar. He definitely seems like the sort of too cool for school captain. Yeah. And again, it goes back to that idea, like they're all like lawless mercenaries who um are going to follow their own code rather than going with the, you know, benevolent clean lines, uh, regimented Starfleet way. Yeah. And, you know, that was focused on, especially in like Deep Space Nine, this idea of like, okay, these are the rules, but are they the rules for a good reason? And it seems like they're sort of questioning that but from the other side here. And I like this as well, because, you know, with the crews on a usual Star Trek series, you're getting people from various or various species and various backgrounds coming in, but all working towards the same ideals. This seems much more like a Dungeons and Dragons party of like, here's different backgrounds, people who can do different types of things. And they all just happen to be there. They all have different motives, but they're all relatively going in the same direction. So they're going to work together. Yeah, it, it is. It is the idea of the ragtag bunch of misfits which is a tried-and-true trope in storytelling. I want to start, I guess, I know we we dabbled a bit in the Chris Rios of it all. I want to start with Dodge, Jess, played by a relative newcomer, Issa Briones, because, I mean, she's the first new character we see in the trailer, right? She's the one who comes to Picard, this mysterious girl that's like, help me, Jean-Luc Picard, you're my only hope. And it seems like Picard is largely working to help her. We don't know her story, obviously. It seems like, you know, her her origin is going to be one of the bigger mysteries. Though I do remember there was a shot in one of the trailers where this old Romulan man calls her, quote-unquote, the Destroyer. So, I mean, it's obvious she's going to be front and center. I think we saw her kick a bit of ass in one of the trailers. But I think, you know, we're not getting the hell out of Dodge at all with Dodge. She is in for the long haul, I think. No, she seems like a pretty central character. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the Data Dream, is this the person that Data appears to be painting? I'm trying to remember. I think there's like one part that's not filled in and maybe, 
you know, Picard was supposed to paint that person, but I could see it be a situation where like he's painting Dodge, which if that's the case, then this also could be again a very Star Wars like situation where like maybe she's fated to be this person or maybe she's this person that's already done this thing. Is she linked to the destruction of Romulus? She's pretty young, so she would have been a kid when she did it, but it remains to be seen. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting that this series is apparently going to kick off with a young woman in a white robe coming to the main character asking for help. I, it yeah. sounds kind of like some other space stories that I've seen in my day, and I'm not going to name any names, but they also start with Star. Well, and I think the other interesting thing is that Picard helping out Dodge, you know, it seems like people bristle at this idea. It gets talked about in a couple of these teasers, but it also speaks back to the fact that Picard himself, at least from what we see, never had children, right? There was that one episode when uh, the Romulans made him believe that he had a child when really he was just like a, a clone or they, they faked it with some DNA. There was his nephew who he treated like a child until he died. And so there was, of course, the Nexus. Yeah, and then there was the Nexus. So, yeah, exactly. When he gets sort of warped to his dreamland, uh, where he, you know, it's Christmas time on this old ranch and he sees, uh, Kirk chopping wood sexily outside. So <laughs> this, this could be a thing where, like, it's a little bit of a weird empty nest syndrome, you know, uh, as great as a dog is, it's nothing compared to a child. And even though Picard used to hate children, he definitely has come around to the idea after a memorable trip in a turbo lift that one time. So I could see maybe Dodge fills a place in his heart that he hasn't had filled since, you know, his nephew all those years ago. Yeah, I think there's certainly a paternal angle that he often wants to explore. And we saw him kind of evolve over the course of TNG from being this very career-driven, I-don't-have-time-for-a-family guy to realizing he kind of wishes that he had had time for a family. So I think it is natural that his paternal instincts would come out if there's a young person coming to him asking for help. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And, you know, it does seem like she's also going to be a close confidant of him. I guess the question is, depending on who she's affiliated with, could it be a thing where maybe she's a spy on behalf of someone else to get to Picard? Like, I could see a moment in the future where she betrays him and it's, you know, the worst heartbreak he could ever feel. But then she comes back for him at the end because it's him he she truly cares about. Yeah, I think... I, I think it's hard to tell. Uh, I think there will be some distrust there because it seems like the kind of series where you do sort of dabble in that, where I think original recipe, Star Trek, The Next Generation, you're going to have people coming into you begging for help. And you're like, oh, obviously these people need help and I'm going to help them. And you don't get a lot of the entrapment and the the sort of subterfuge. So going back to the robotics of it all. So we have Allison Pill here from the newsroom to the ready room. She plays uh, Agnes Gerardi, who I think is a roboticist, I believe she said it, at New York Comic Con, which should be very interesting. And you can imagine why Picard would want to acquire her, whether it's her reassembling before or her expertise when it comes to what she can do against maybe a Borg that's been weaponized by the Romulans. And I'm always I'm always excited to see Alison Pill. Uh, she's had this very long and interesting career where she's done a lot of she's done a lot of movies and a lot of especially TV movies. Um uh, 
and I think most people will recognize her from Scott Pilgrim versus the world, at least yep. if I know our audience the way I think I do. But I want to. Can she call the crew sex bomb or is that copyrighted? <laughs> That's probably copyrighted. Um, Darn. And I, I'm guessing like little speech bubbles are not going to come out of her mouth when she speaks. Yeah. Unless we do another animated short trek. Yeah. Um, which anything's possible. I think the animated short treks went over very well. Uh, but I also want to call attention. Um, she was back in 2010. She was in the miniseries adaptation of the Pillars of the Earth, which is a favorite novel of mine uh, that takes place in the 12th century. And it was not a great adaptation. There were a lot of really big names in it for what it was. Uh, like, I believe it had um, Ian McShane and Eddie Redmayne. And her part was pretty small, but she really brought something to it she just kind of owned every scene that she was in and really kind of turned me into a fan in that moment interesting yeah i'll have to check it out i guess in the week we have in between but i'm excited to see i guess i'm you know she's a she's a great actress as you say but i guess i'm more excited for like what her character represents for the plot than her character right now just because again if picard is seeking out somebody who specializes in ai what could that possibly mean? And I guess now that we know that the Borg are involved and it seems like there are some androids uh, steeled away somewhere, then she could be, you know, she's not the hacker of the team. We'll get into that, but she can at least be like the on-hands expert for that type of stuff. Yeah, I mean, you always have to have a sciencey person in your in your rating party. Yeah, I suppose she's the science officer here for this for this, you know, makeshift crew. Yeah, she's like the the Spock slash Dax slash data spacs spacs yeah all right we'll call her spacs for now sure see if it sticks we're not we're not Uh, gonna remember anybody's name we'll just make up new names for them so we we spoke about santiago cabrera as chris rios for a second the one thing i was surprised to see jess is that uh, you know maybe it's because this is a chris rios ship but i was surprised to see that he's the captain and not picard I thought Picard was going to Kirk this thing and totally be like, all right, I'm going to I'm going to take the helm again. Uh, You can hang out in the corner. Well, it sure seems like he would bristle against like having to be the captain because he really has some problems with Starfleet. Uh, And so I think we need to be really careful about the terminology we use here because he is really like, I don't think he's that guy. I think it's his ship and he's in charge. But. I would be surprised if we're really meant to think of him in the terms of like a Kirk or a Picard. Yeah, I guess let me redefine it. He's the pilot of the ship. So I guess he's more so in like the, uh, you know, back when like when Wesley used to sit at like that second comm, you know, at at the at the front of the deck. He's the helmsman. Uh, He's the helmsman. (laughs) Exactly. I don't know why that that word escaped me. But yeah, that's essentially what he is, even though, again, it seems like he has a central chair and i could assume it's i could see something again going back to that other star franchise of picard being like okay i need a ship because starfleet obviously won't give me one you i'm taking your ship we're hopping in this heap of junk and we're taking off to the space i i think that's exactly what's happening here i think they i think i think picard's finding some sucker that's going to drive him to the space Mm-hmm. And this guy also happens to be a pretty skilled thief in his own regard. So maybe Picard also maybe profiled him for his thievery skills if he's trying to pilfer something in particular. It, don't most Dungeons and Dragons parties have to have a thief? 
Yeah, he's basically the the rogue right now, which means that, you know, rogues are also very self-motivated because they're primarily driven by greed. So we could see, you know, uh, the most Ferengi-based humanized crew member here in uh, Chris Rios. I think it's going to be really interesting to see to see that kind of portrayed in a more nuanced way, because I think we are never meant to feel like we want to be Ferengi or empathize with them unless they're struggling with their cultural drive to yeah, profit. I would say unless their name is Nog, I agree. Yeah, you, you, got, you have Rom who wants to be an engineer and Nog who wants to join Starfleet. And it's like those are the ones you empathize with because they're the ones that want to break away from that. And so I think it's interesting to see someone on the obverse of that coin who is who sees like the Federation values and then is drawn to something else. So moving on, Michelle Hurd is Rafi Musiker, I believe is how or Musiker is how you pronounce her name. This is super interesting because, you know, it seemed like Picard may have known of these other crew members, but it seems like he and Rafi have a bit of a, I wouldn't say a, a they have a connection, maybe not a for, an outright formal relationship, but it seems like they were friendly with each other when he approached her. Yeah, it seems like maybe she is the conduit by which he gets this ship um, because she is also apparently she is uh, she is partnered with uh, Rios. I mm. I don't know I I don't know if that is a more business arrangement but then you do see them you do see them making out in the in the in the trailer so I think maybe they are partners in life as well. But Rafi has her own history here and it's not just singing baby beluga over and over <laughs> again. So she's a former Starfleet much like Picard but Jess, she has a substance abuse problem. This is really super interesting because I think the way that Star Trek paints itself up until this moment is like we have solved a lot of the world's problems like world hunger, not a thing, you know, greed. We've kind of done away with that. It's only for suckers and Ferengis and substance abuse. That really strikes me as the sort of thing that the Starfleet-driven utopia would have eradicated centuries ago. Yeah, or it could be a thing where they swept that under the rug. Because I guess the thing with substance abuse is that it's an emotional dependency. You know, it's, it's this idea of, like, I need this because it makes me feel good. And from that perspective, it's a little tougher to control than, like, okay, I need money to get things. Well, we'll give you the things so you don't need money. That's a little bit more cut and dry than... I need this to make myself feel happy. No, you you feel happy now. You don't need this thing. Or maybe we'll give you something else to make you feel happy. So I could see this as a bigger issue just because it's a little more... It's a little more woven throughout, like, the tapestry of the mind than something like greed. But, yeah, that being said, I don't know. We, we haven't touched on it too much. There was that one... I, I always reference the season one TNG episode with the drugs. That's so like an after school special. But there was another one when I remember when Riker went to Risa and like he was given this game. Do you remember this one, yes. Jess? Where like they put on VR goggles and then he showed it to the rest of the crew and it was like a, that it was, was definitely like, a, was that the Ashley Judd one? Yes, where she and Wesley worked together to save the ship. And that was like definitely a big old metaphor for addiction. Yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting, Mike, because the way that you're talking about addiction is maybe not the way that we talked about it even back in the next generation days. Right. And I think as such, the because the shifting perception of it 
has become so much more complicated. I think back in the late 80s and certainly back in the 60s, you could say, oh, we just give people a pill and they wouldn't be addicted to anything anymore and everything would be happy forever and nobody would seek it out or want it anymore. And I think that's we know now that it's not going to be that simple. Whatever the solution is, it's definitely not going to be just the idea that we're going to eradicate it forever. Like it's always going to be something that people will grapple with and struggle with. And you can't just globally like wave your hand and solve it, which I think maybe we kind of hoped that would be the case back in the day. Yeah. And even, you know, this is sort of like a bit of a, a sideline to this whole idea of, of encountering mental health issues. But we even saw that a bit last season of Star Trek Discovery, right? With Spock's, you know, Latoktorai, his learning disorder and subsequent depression from that. I do agree that it seems like they're trying, Star Trek is trying to really approach these issues in more of a modern lens than something that Roddenberry would try to approach things, which, like you said, is a very 60s, 70s mentality of like, ah, just put a band-aid on it and you'll be totally fine. They're, they're giving more thought to these because these issues are more nuanced than those other ideas like, yeah, we'll just, you know, we don't need any money. Uh, this is a little less, uh, you know, easy of a, of a solve. And so I'm excited to at least encounter this. So I hope from Raffi's sake, it doesn't lead to like, you know, her majorly going through withdrawal for like three to five episodes of this 10 episode season. One would hope, but I think it's also, it's also a nice idea to say that this is a character that we could like and admire that has traits that are useful. And this is just one other facet of her personality because, you know, drug abuse in popular culture is usually portrayed as something that's just like, it's just crippling and destroying to everybody uh, around you. And it just takes a good person and makes them into a bad person immediately. And there's nothing sympathetic about them. And it's not true. It's a whole person. And I think that will be interesting to see someone for whom this is one facet of her personality. And it's probably her substance abuse issue will cause trouble for the rest of the crew, but it maybe won't be her one defining characteristic. Well, speaking of ulterior motivations, so we have not one, but two Romulan mainstays here, Jess. I first want to speak about Harry Treadaway, who people probably know from Mr. Mercedes for like the five people who watched that. Nobody or, watched that. <laughs> yeah. Or or for Penny Dreadful. So he plays Narek who is a Romulan agent who allegedly is joining Picard's crew to investigate, you know, what the Romulans are doing with the Borg technology. But it seems like from the trailers, Jess, that Narek might be a double agent. Yeah, that is really interesting that um, he would just be welcomed with all the tensions that there are with the Romulans. It's like he's just going to be welcomed into the to the raiding party. And yeah, it turns out that Maybe we shouldn't have trusted the Romulan guy. Yeah, well, also, uh, you know, I feel like Star Trek Discovery, when it made this revelation in, like, episode seven of the first season, right? Like, dun, dun, dun. He actually was a spy the entire time. <laughs> but now we, get, now we get to see both sides of the coin of, like, Narek trying to navigate this world of, like, disguising who he is while simultaneously being a servant to two masters. Though... I was a bit confused, Jess. Maybe it's because there was a lot of, you know, bowl cuts and, and, you know, Romulan ears going on. But so Narek was hooking up with somebody, but was he also hooking up with Dodge or like has some sort of connection with Dodge on the ship? Yeah, that was it was such a quick cut. It was hard to tell. 
Yeah, I'm not sure. Because I could also see something where, like, Narek is going undercover to get to Dodge for some particular reason, which I guess substantiates the theory that she's connected to the Romulus destruction. Uh, and then maybe that means that he either romances her or, like, tries to get buddy-buddy with her. I'm not entirely sure, but I guess she's the person that he's targeting with his mission. Yeah, but it also looks like he... He is trying to find out what the Romulan connection to the Borg is. Mm. And I don't know to whom he wants to report or to what end he wants that information. Right. And I think that's going to be the big thing, right? Like we talked about, you know, uh, double crosses that become triple crosses. I I feel like Narek's internal conflict as to who he serves is going to be interesting, especially if he finds out that you know, the Romulans had been pulling the wool over his eyes as to what they were doing with the Borg technology. I can imagine how much that substantially changes his worldview and how that may want him actually want to turn on his people, or at least the remnants of them. Yeah, I think it's going to be very complicated for him, but it's it seems less complicated. There's another Romulan in the party who is allegedly uh, sort of the muscle, I guess. And uh, we have Elnor, who is apparently he's Team Picard all the way. I mean, this is essentially Legolas with a sword, right? Like, he even has an elven name. Yeah, it, yeah. I don't know about these Romulan naming conventions. These seem like, like Vulcan rejects. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which, I mean, makes sense considering their designs sort of seem like Vulcan rejects, right? They're like, oh no, they're like their distant cousins. You know, they sort of look like them, but they have very differently shaped or slightly differently shaped ears. Yeah, they, they have attitude problems, unlike the Vulcans. So it's exactly. totally different species. Yeah, so Elnor is apparently he's a Romulan refugee who is a big expert in hand-to-hand combat. And is basically, I think, uh, probably recruited as, like, Picard's muscle. You know, we see him sort of fight with a katana, so it seems like he's really trained in, like, the Eastern ways, almost maybe Klingon-esque. And he's played by uh, even Eva Gora, who seems just like a big old newcomer. I think his biggest role that he did was, like, a background actor in some Australian TV show. So he's a huge X-Factor in many ways. Yeah, um, he's a uh, he's easy on the eyes when he's not a Romulan. Yeah, but he's going to be a Romulan with uh, you know, samurai haircut and all. Yeah, I, I I really feel like the decision to preserve the bowl cuts across the Star Trek continuity it's really hurting your heartthrob potential. Yeah, and I would also say I was you know as soon as I saw Narek with like that that bowl cut do my mind just went back to Spock's sort of like Beatles do from Star Trek Discovery Season 2, and I just started conflating the two images in my mind, which again, Vulcan, Romulan, it just it always ends up getting mixed up together, Jess. Yeah, it really does. And it, it's kind of, it's interesting that they've kept the same look for the Romulans over the years, because like the Klingons, for example, they look like completely different species in every in every property of Star Trek. So it's not like you couldn't like give them a little forehead thing or something. Yeah, and the only difference is, I think, or at least it used to be that the Vulcans obviously more wore like the sleek robes, whereas the uh, the Romulans wore what the Greatest Generation podcast like to call bread boxes, which were like <laughs> yeah. very wide-shouldered, boxy uniforms. But I 1980s think by the D- power suits. Yeah, but I think by the DS9 era, those have been phased out into more sleeker looks, so now they've just further sort of obscured any differences between the two. Yeah, well, in the Deep Space Nine era, they mostly wore pajamas, which, yeah. that's a culture I could get behind. Well, and it's also now to the point where, like, again, these are going to be two Romulan main characters, but in one of, like, the super quick teasers, we saw a Vulcan 
admiral from Starfleet. So it's like, okay, we thought we were done with the Vulcans, but they're going to come back in some way. Yeah, I, I personally, I love that we have more than one Romulan in this main cast because it was always really kind of annoying in previous Star Trek properties where it'd be like human, 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 human. And then like one dude is some other alien race. And then you might have one other person who's a completely other different alien race, but you'd never have like two of the same species that's not human. Right. Or you'd have like a, yes, they're a different alien race, but they look very much like a human. Like, oh no, Dana Troy is half Betazoid. Dax is a Trill, but Trill takes a human form. So it's like, okay, we don't have to spend that much on makeup and special effects to make this person, you know, look like a certain way every time. We're already spending so much money on Michael Dorn and Armin Shimmerman and Rene <laughs> Aubergenois. Like, we can't, we can't put the budget in. Yeah. I'm, and before everybody asks me, yes, I know there were two Vulcans on Voyager. Yeah, but I, and I, I like it, though, because like you said, this seems more, it's weird to say realistic, but it seems like they would not want to pick one from every pile for, you know, a crew. And I can also imagine, like, there's probably going to be an interesting relationship between Narek and Elnor, because it's clear that they are after two very different purposes. So it's like this thing where, yes, we have the same blood, but what our hearts are working towards are not the same thing. And how does that affect our relationship? Or in other words, what, you think all Romulans know each other? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you think we look the same? Because you think we're related? Exactly. It's interesting, Jess. I saw Dodge in some sort of like weird facility, which we see a few times in the teasers, that seems to be the housing of like so many things, where this seems to be a place where the, the Romulans are using the Borg technology, but that's also where the androids are. I don't know if this is a flashback or if Dodge gets jailed soon after meeting Picard, but I have to feel like a lot of action goes on there, considering how many plot points seem to be centered there. Yeah, it, it looks like... It actually it looks like a giant salad bowl. <laughs> Maybe that's the Borg have upgraded their technology from cubes to bowls. Yeah, that's like um, it's it's like one of those make your own salad places, and it's like the entire thing is shaped like a bowl. But like every every time they show the like that that sort of dark blue background, it always seems mm -hmm. like the sides are sort of slopy, and that's like this seems like a really inefficient way to to keep your lab. But uh, you do you Romulans. Yeah, or like that ride at a fair where like the the gravitron that like yeah. spins you and you and you you're pushed to the outside of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly like that. I mean, I assume I always assume that's how they're getting the artificial gravity on all their space stations anyway. And I would also say, you know, that we've seen again snippets of that Borg technology, but there's actually a really fun Easter egg where apparently there's a placard in the facility that reads, "This facility has gone five thousand eight hundred forty three days without an assimilation." Which is a nice little, like, Borg and joke there. That's very funny. That's a long time, too. And that's also the, the numbers written in chalk. So, you know, like, that poor guy has to probably, with the one arm that's left, like, erase the number and put zero down instead. Well, everybody has a job in the future. I suppose. Well, yeah, and apparently, if you're a Borg, like, everyone does the same job. We're just part of all accomplishing one job together. Yep. The that's ultimate form of micromanagement. But everybody has a job. Yeah, and that's it. Yes. There's no multitasking with the Borg. No, definitely not. Um, but yeah, that's our kind of our main cast. Uh, do you want to spend a little time on some of the people that we already know that we've seen in these trailers? Right. So we talked about, you know, we talked about this during our canon catch up, but we officially saw Troy and Riker 
and their kid their kid was calling to Riker, which is very interesting. We obviously, last time we saw Troy and Riker was them getting married. Seems like we have fast forwarded past their tour, uh, you know, on another Starfleet ship. And now they are retired, assumingly in the country somewhere. Yeah. Now, and now I know that, um, Betazoid, Betazoids are not, they do not have the same biology as humans, but boy, that kid sounded young for yeah. the two of them. Like, the two of them are in their 60s, at least. And how do they have an eight-year-old kid? Well, considering, and especially considering that, uh, didn't Deanna Troy that one time, like, get pregnant and have a baby that turned instantly into, like, a 10-year-old because it was an alien? Yeah, but that's a, that physiology, you know, that was like a beam of light and a betazoid. I don't know how long it takes to have a baby with a human in a betazoid. I don't know. It could be another immaculate conception. Who's to say? We yeah, need a that- paternity test. Maybe maybe it's not Riker's kid. Maybe it's like a light baby again. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it seems like we're going to get a really cute scene with uh, Riker and Picard. I would not be surprised if, like, we get the Troy-Riker-Picard scene in episode one and that's it. I know Frakes is going to be directing episodes three and four at least for this. And so I could very much see, like, Picard check- checks in with all his old friends and then he goes off with his new friends. Well, it's similar to Picard's role in the pilot of Deep Space Nine. Yeah, that's true. And except uh, now you don't need to pull, put old age makeup on the character and like DeForest Kelly and Next Generation. Now they actually do have the old age makeup on. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I mean, they, they look better in their old age than they did in the old age makeup. Yeah, that's very true. If you, if you watch, uh, you know, the, the series finale, you very much see how, like, you know what? They aged a lot better than how people assumed that they would be, uh, at the end of it all. But yeah, we'll see them. We talked about the, the data of it all. I, I want to make some calls here, Jess, because there are some people who we did not see from the next generation cast. So I'll read off some names of next generation actors. Give me a thumbs up or thumbs down as to if we'll see them. LeVar Burton. Um, I think that's a big thumbs up on LeVar Burton. And A, what else has he got going on? B, he seems to have really genuinely tender feelings about his time on the series. I think we might not see him until season two, which already is a thing. So let's keep LeVar Burton in our back pocket. But yeah, I think he'll show up at some point. Yeah, I will definitely. I, that's the, probably the next thing I want to talk about is uh, Picard got the season two announcement before season one aired, which is... Crazy, and it's a great sign, and we'll definitely talk about the the changing of the guard that's apparently going to be happening there. But yeah, I agree. I think thumbs up, even if it's just like a video call to Lavar Burton if he stops over from you know filming Reading Rainbow, especially since Jordy is not wearing the visor anymore. Like it's very easy to get Lavar just in to do a couple of scenes and then go. Yeah, he'll just show up and be like, "But you don't have to take my word for it." Exactly, and then he'll go back uh, to whatever him and Leia Brahms are up to. Yep. I I don't know. I don't know, Mike. I think the Leah Brahms thing, that seemed like it was fantasy on his part. I, I don't know <laughs> Do if think, that's yeah. canon. I mean, he was, he was able to create that fantasy program and fell in love with her before. Do you think he, he was actually just with fantasy Leah Brahms? Yeah. I Well, I think I also think that the future that we saw at the end of the the next generation, I think that was only a possible future. I don't think that's necessarily, I don't think everything that happened in it we can assume is actually going on in this universe. All right. Well, what about, we talked about, you know, some possible relationships before. Do you think Gates McFadden is going to make an appearance? It sure seems like she is not. Um, And I don't know. 
I, I think that they may want to keep her off the show deliberately just because they went there with Picard and Crusher and they mm. don't necessarily want to have to be admired in that. Like, I think it is a smart move to just keep Crusher off the series entirely because they went full Crusher at the end of Next Gen and there's really you got to either steer fully into the skid or you got to ignore it. If they bring her on for a guest spot, do they explain what happened to them in the years between? Though I guess by the time like we got into like insurrection and nemesis, they weren't really really focusing on that anyway. They weren't. Um, and I think, again, this goes back to the future that we saw in All Good Things was only a possible future. And it doesn't necessarily mean that's really what happened. Right. And for those that might not remember, that's the future where they did indeed get married. But by the time we get to All Good Things, they were divorced. And so Picard had to sort of convince his ex-wife to help him in this instance, which was a, a lot of fun. But yeah, cause, I mean, I know Gates McFadden was at the premiere in London for Picard, but that could just be to support a friend rather than be like, yeah, surprise, surprise, I'm appearing. I agree that I think it definitely won't be a season one appearance. Maybe if Picard does find like a fledging romance, whether it be with Raffi or somebody else, maybe in season two, then, you know, Beverly appears and it becomes a weird love triangle situation. But I, I, I wouldn't see a reason why she would show in this first season. Yeah. And I think you really run the risk of if Crusher is somebody, if you bring it on, if you bring her on, it becomes all about her. And I don't think they want that. How about Michael Dorn? Worf moved past the Enterprise. Would he come back to Picard? Slash, would Michael Dorn get back in all that makeup to play Worf again? It's been a long time since he's done that. I mean, certainly it's been... It's something I think they always had to spend too much time talking it up in the movies whenever they would bring Worf back. Like, oh, but Worf, don't you have a war to fight on DS9? And he'd be like, no, I came back to do you guys a solid. And that's, again, that's one of those things like he's so of his own universe that I think to bring him into this plot would require too much explanation. So I'm going to say probably a no on Michael Dorn as Worf. But could we see Michael Dorn come in out of makeup and play another character? Hmm. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I, I, though, unfortunately, you know what? I think they put him under a bunch more makeup. They put him under a bunch of like lumpy makeup to be like, hey, you guys didn't know that, but that's Michael Dorn. You know how they'd be like, you didn't realize, but that was Jason Sudeikis behind the, the Stormtrooper mask. Yeah. Or, um, or, you know, someone like a Jeffrey Combs who played like 10 different alien races yeah. over or, the course or, or of like, several Star Trek properties. Or like a Clint Howard, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I could I could see that. I could see that being what they do. Like they they have this other character and they they just like put a bunch of different loaves on Michael Dorn. Well, yeah. And this, this is the interesting thing as well, right, is because the last time we saw, you know, Jordy and Beverly and Worf, they were all working for the Federation. And considering how estranged Picard is from the Federation, we saw that, you know, that Troy and Riker are retired, but who's to say with these people, they could all be deep in the pocket of the Federation. And so they wouldn't want to consort with Picard whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. This goes back to this is Picard's story is so removed from the Federation at this point. I don't see how I don't see how you incorporate these people in their very Federation lives. So how about 
Will Wheaton. Because the interesting thing, Jess, is that Will Wheaton was announced this week as the host of The Ready Room, which is the Picard after show. Does that lend more or less credence to Wesley Crusher making an appearance in Picard? Well, Will Wheaton has not acted as playing anybody but himself in a really long time. Like, certainly we've seen him on The Big Bang Theory, and he's around, he does podcasts, and he is kind of a, he's a hero to fanboys everywhere. I think he's kind of been out of the game. I could see him doing a very brief cameo at some point, but I can't see him playing any role that puts him on screen for more than like 10 seconds. Could he voice a computer? I don't think he's the one they get to voice the computer. Oh, darn. That, I, I, not that I wouldn't want him voicing my computer, but I think there are, you've got a plethora of people to choose from. Or could he be time-traveling Will Wheaton, who just is sort of like spends an episode being like, oh my god, I'm Will Wheaton, here I am in the 24th century, what's going on? I think that's that its is, own that, series, Mike. Then that that, that's not a stretch for him. Did you write a fan fiction about this? Listen, I may have pushed it under Alex Kurtzman's door. You know, hey, I heard you were developing some more live-action Star Trek series. If you want to add a third, here's this idea. You know, it's sort of like a Will Wheaton meets Buck Rogers type of idea. Is that why he blocked you on Twitter? Among many reasons. (laughs) He didn't really block Mike on Twitter. No, but I I was trying to think, is there anybody else who you think might have a a chance of making an appearance from Picard's past? Um, I think... It would be very fun to bring back Denise Crosby. Yeah, I think so, especially as Sela. I would kill for a Dr. Pulaski appearance. <laughs> and you're the only one, Mike. Just because, I mean, uh, you know, obviously Picard was very happy when Beverly came back to the Enterprise in season three. One of them being that he and Pulaski just did not get along whatsoever. Oh, Pulaski was the worst. Well, it's, there was that one episode, right? And that's when we first find out about the uh, the Nausicaan stabbing him in the heart and requiring that heart transplant, uh, where, you know, Pulaski is forced to operate on him. And it's very clear that he's uncomfortable with her being let in on that secret, which, you know, it speaks to his character, but he'd be much more comfortable if Beverly was the one doing it than her. That's clear. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I, I, I would think that nobody really wants Pulaski to come back. What about, can we bring back Michelle Forbes as Ensign Rowe? Or I guess no longer Ensign Rowe, Maki Rowe. You know, Michelle Forbes is an interesting one because I think she, had, for a long time, I think she kind of wanted to distance herself from the Star Trek world. Um, like, for instance, the character of Kira Norris was written for Michelle Forbes to be right. Rowe. And then she decided she didn't actually want to do that. And so they wrote the character in a different direction. And I wonder if she'd come back around and she'd feel like she wanted to be in there. But uh, again, her character's gone in such a different direction from everybody else that I think it would be hard to reincorporate her. Yeah, though, I guess you could argue that like the Maquis were sort of like, I wouldn't say it's exactly what Picard's doing now, but it's this idea, right, of like, we don't like what our government did, so we're going to sort of rebel against them and be our own little ragtag group. So I think it would be an interesting comparison, assuming she's still with the Maquis, but it also might be a little bit too much of a deep cut to bring her back for that, considering that, you know, she was in a handful of episodes and then she like disappeared in like the fourth to last episode of the series. Yeah, I got one for you, Mike. Will we see 
Miles and or Keiko O'Brien? Ooh, that's a good one. Because obviously, you know, uh, the O'Briens disappeared, I want to say, what, around season five or six, depending on when DS9 had started, and there wasn't too, too much crossover. But that could be super interesting. Or how about this? How about Picard interacts with a a now 20-year-old Molly O'Brien? That could be very interesting. And you wouldn't even have to get the original actor. Exactly. And you wouldn't even need to bring in, you know, Columini or anything. Just be like, all right, we're going to bring in this person. You're Molly O'Brien. Say your parents are doing well. And then we'll sort of have that fan service be, you know, uh, be taken care of. Yeah. Could be Molly O'Brien. Could be Kira Yoshi O'Brien. Never met Picard, but he'd be like, yes, my parents speak very highly of you. Exactly. Yeah, I I think there's certainly possibility there. Uh, It makes a lot more sense than interacting with Riker and Troy's eight-year-old son. (laughs) Well, and that's the thing as well, is that, you know, obviously we'll have many episodes for these myriad TNG Easter eggs to come out. Many more than we initially thought, because as I mentioned before, it was announced in the past week uh, at the TCA Winter Press Conference for CBS All Access that Picard has already been renewed for a second season, which is really exciting. They are changing, uh, they are changing hands for the show. Michael Chabon is not show running after the first season because he has another show to work on. I believe the person who had worked on uh, 12 Monkeys is working on it for season two. But Jess, before we even get into season one, do you have any reactions to this renewal? Oh, well, they must think that it's okay. Either that yeah. or it was really cheap. <laughs> they came like, in well, under we, budget. They're like, we oh. We crank out a bunch of these. But yeah, and it, it makes me excited as well in that I, I think that while they're excited to do a season two, they want to take care of it. You know, Kurtzman had said after the renewal announcement of like, we want to see how the fans respond to the first season. We saw that with Discovery, right? How they sort of pivoted in a a different direction. They gave the Klingons hair back, for instance, after listening to the fans. So the fact that they're willing to listen to people makes me think that they're not just going to be like, great, we'll jump right into a season two, make the sequel without even, you know, listening to what went right or went wrong with season one, which contributes to an overall better product. But it also means from a narrative perspective, it couldn't mean that maybe season one won't necessarily end on like this big finish. Maybe it's something that will naturally take a pause and segue more into a season two multi-season arc. Yeah, I, I would be pretty excited about that as well. And I think they would not put they would not bring back Patrick Stewart as Jean-Luc Picard. And indeed, he would not come back if it was just a bunch of crap. Like it, we know that it had to be good script to get him to sign on in the first place. So they have that going for them already. Right. Exactly. Patrick Stewart may play crap in the emoji movie, but he does not sign off on crap. That is for sure. Yeah, he definitely he got all of the crap out of his system for the um, award winning uh, emoji movie, uh, which yeah. I am a fan of that. Well, that's the thing as well as people are like, why, why would Patrick Stewart go back to Jean-Luc Picard after, you know, decrying Star Trek for so many years? And like, if you look at what he did recently on the Emoji movie, he's like, all right, I better dig myself out of this hole right now. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like, um, when Leonard Nimoy wrote a book called I Am Not Spock, and then he backtracked and wrote a book called I Am Spock. Yeah, exactly. Like, just kidding. I am not poop. I am, I am Picard. Yeah. Although I, I think the fact that Patrick Stewart voiced poop in the emoji movie just speaks to the sense of humor he has about himself exactly which should also mean some fun stuff too of poking fun at the picard character 
as well. Like I can imagine him walking onto Rio's ship and trying to order tea Earl Grey hot and just getting, you know, looks of derision from everybody. Yeah. And what if the snarky computer on Rios's ship is like, yeah, we don't we don't serve that. Yeah. Or he tries to uh, fence with somebody and then just gets shot with a with a blaster a la Indiana Jones. <laughs> oh, dear. That's that may be a bridge too far, Mike. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. But yes, I'm so excited. Picard's only a week away. I, I am. I'm excited, too. I had one final note that I wanted to make because we didn't really talk about this, but I and I don't know how much there is to really say about it. But I, I did think it was cute that uh, Picard has a canine companion uh, and he is a pit bull named number one. And it kind of speaks to his need for companionship. And also I loved that Patrick Stewart insisted that the dog, he should have a dog and the dog should be a pit bull. And I, because he has done a lot of work um, advocating for pit bulls and he has several rescue dogs himself. I thought that was just really sweet. Is it a compliment to the dog or an insult to Riker that they're given the same nickname? What if it's a compliment to Riker? Mm, could be, oh, you treat me like a dog. Everybody loves dogs. Some people don't love other people, so therefore I'm higher than some other people in your eyes. Respect, well, sure. Picard. Sure. And I want to know what happened when he took that dog to obedience school and taught it to sit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I probably just straddled a chair then, right? Like all number ones do? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that a thing? Yeah, I would assume so. And, you know, uh, I think, you know, while the dog number one can lick his own balls, I think that the Riker number one has probably had those types of things done to him on Risa in other scenarios. Yeah, I, I'm sure that it is one way in which um, human number one feels inferior to canine number one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, dear. Do, do oh. you think I, I'm guessing again, if Picard, depending on when Picard goes into space, I feel like canine number one will be a fun thing to be introduced in the first episode but it'll be episode number one and done for number one i think we've been down the road of dog on a spaceship before and Mm -hmm. you know as cute as porthos the beagle is i don't know how much more territory there is to explore there plus i do not want the anxiety trip every week jess of are they going to kill the dog off i don't want this to be baby yoda for 2020 oh yeah you're right we've we've already had baby yoda as well yeah, exactly. And I know this is, again, a different type of thing, but it's cute. And so it falls in the same bucket. It's, it's it, the, in the same Romulan-like bucket are Baby Yoda and number one, the Pitbull. Yeah, the same floating egg pod, if you will. <laughs> exactly. Well, Mike, I think that about wraps it up for us on that adorable note. Um we would love to hear from all of you, the listeners, about uh, what are you most excited about when it comes to Picard? And we really especially want to hear your thoughts on the premiere episode, which is dropping on January 23rd, I believe. Yeah, January 3rd for CBS All Access. I believe for those who are outside the U.S. who are getting it streamed via either Amazon Prime or Netflix, I think it's dropping on the 24th. But yeah, for those of us in the U.S. and watching them on All Access, expect them every Thursday for the next 10 weeks. Yes, and Mike and I will be back. We will probably record our reactions to each episode sometime over the weekend and have it fresh in your feeds for the beginning of the week. Yeah, but like just said, you know, if you want to send us stuff between you watching the episode and us recording it, we're always happy to talk Trek with you all, so long as, you know, we're, we're all kind and cordial to one another. Uh, you can always email feedback at postshowrecaps.com or you can reach out to us on social media. 
Yep. And you can find me on Twitter at Haymaker Hattie. You can find me on Twitter at a Mike Bloom type. We are really looking forward to hearing from all of you with all of your Star Trek thoughts. And believe me, we know you have many and we want we want all of them. Good, bad, otherwise. It's great to hear from you. Um, and I think that about does it for us, Mike. Is there anything else we need to tell the people? I mean, if it if there is, we'll be back next week to uh, talk about it. But we'll actually have some genuine 2020 Picard stuff to talk about, Jess. I never thought this day would come, but alas, it is here. We have come out of warp drive and we are hovering above this Class M planet and I cannot wait to beam down. I, I'm ready. I'm on the platform. I'm ready for O'Brien to flip the switch. So we will be back here next week to cover episode one. I cannot wait to see it and talk about to talk about it with you, Mike. So thanks for being here with me for all of this. And thank you to all the listeners. Live long and prosper. And we'll see you next week. 